I do invite you to open your Bible to a very interesting passage. We are in a small letter inspired by the Holy Spirit at the end of our New Testament, one of two letters written by the Apostle Peter. This is called 1 Peter or 1 Peter. He was a disciple of Jesus. The theme of this letter is hope, but not just general hope. It is specific hope for a specific group. And that group are those who know Christ as Savior, who have been transformed by what we would call the gospel and have experienced spiritual rebirth. Or in the words of Jesus, they've been born again. Peter is writing our text this week. We've just been taking this section by section. We come to verses 17 through 22, where he is zeroing in on something we might call the gospel in a nutshell, or the core of the gospel. And Peter's message about the gospel message is this. This is the only message that can lead to eternal life. Now, where you're at your spiritual journey, I am not sure, but at least we need to have the honesty to say the Bible says there's only one way to gain eternal life. There's only one path to gain the new heaven and new earth, and it is through Jesus, the unique Son of God. And so this is describing that in some detail. What Peter's going to do is we come to this section, and there are some very interesting verses. In fact, most New Testament scholars agree that part of this text is some of the most difficult wording and teaching in the New Testament to understand. And so we're going to tread where angels fear to tread as we dive into this, but the essence of this is extremely clear. And so Peter's doing two things in these verses. One, he's going to clarify the core of the gospel. And secondly, he's going to announce the victory of the risen Jesus. But first of all, let's dive in to the core of the gospel, verses 17 and 18. And I say this up front. It is amazing how much confusion there is about the gospel just in American culture. Even in American churches, even in evangelical Bible teaching churches, how many sit and really are fuzzy and don't understand exactly what the gospel is and is not? Even in our own church, I continue to hear at times people say, oh yeah, that's, you, you follow the Ten Commandments to get saved, don't you? Or it's something to do with that. And we'll see this morning, it has nothing to do with that. So if you're here this morning and you have a clear understanding of the gospel or you don't, our goal is to be all on the same page, kids, young people, and adults, that we walk out of here with a better understanding of what the gospel is and is not, and then a passion to share it with those around us who do not know it. So let's dive in, verses 17 and 18. Verse 17 sets the stage grammatically and linguistically and contextually for what's coming. So verse 17 is telling us, let me tell you what it says, and I'll read it, that it's better to suffer for doing what is right than to suffer for doing what is wrong. That's Peter's thesis here, and then he's going to unpack that in verses 18 to 22. So verse 17, it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. That has been a key theme in Peter's letter. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, in verses 18 and following, he is going to unpack that mostly by giving us the example of Jesus. Verse 18, here's what he's telling us, that Jesus was righteous and yet suffered. In fact, he's going to tell us Jesus was so righteous 
that he suffered and he didn't even sin, and he was so righteous, he actually suffered for the sins of others. And as Peter presents the example of Jesus, this is where he highlights the core ingredients in the gospel, and he boils it down to three. Now, the gospel is broader than this, but it's not less than this. So, the three ingredients he gives us in verse 18, we would call the very essence, the core of the gospel. Leave any one of these three out, you no longer have biblical gospel. You, have, you might have religion, you might have something else, but it's not New Testament gospel. And those three things are the suffering of Jesus on the cross, His atoning death, His death, He had to die, it wasn't just the suffering, He died, and then His resurrection. And Peter gives us all three in one verse, verse 18. For, so remember, this is his example from verse 17. For Christ also suffered once for sins. There's the suffering. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body. There's the second key ingredient in the gospel. But made alive in the spirit, resurrection. That's the third key ingredient. It would be, it would, it would be hard to find a verse anywhere in the New Testament canon that summarize the gospel more concisely and cogently than verse 18. In a nutshell, I'll say it again, the suffering, the death, toning death, and resurrection of Jesus form the core of what we would call the New Testament gospel. Now, Peter doesn't use the word gospel in this section. He does use it in chapter 4, verse 17, but what he is describing here is the essence of, he's clearly dealing with a concept of gospel. Now, let me take a step back for a minute. I don't know where everyone is spiritually, but and we all come from lots of different backgrounds spiritually. Let's define our term, gospel. It's thrown around a lot today. It's used sometimes pejoratively, sometimes positively. It's even thrown out regularly in gospel-preaching churches. Sometimes there is gospel presented, sometimes there's not. So let's clarify what the word is. What is the word? The word gospel is a noun. It's a Greek noun. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek. That just means common Greek, not Hellenistic Greek, not in classical Greek, written in Koine Greek. Similar language, but simpler. And in that language, the word gospel, euangelion, was a noun. It was used in secular literature of the day. It was also used by the gospel writers. The word itself, euangelion, occurs just over 75 times in our Greek New Testament. And it's actually made up of two words. It's kind of a compound word. Eu, which, mean, which is, we would write in English, eu, is good. And you might recognize this prefix from other words like eulogy, where you get up and supposedly say good words about the deceased, hopefully not lying about them, just saying nice stuff. Sometimes eulogies are so said to be, you know, lying about the dead. Hopefully it's not. Hopefully people don't have to lie. Somebody once said, live in such a way, it was a preacher who said this to somebody, live in such a way that I don't have to lie at your funeral, okay? Eulogy. You recognize the prefix. Or euphemism, good report. Or you might recognize the word, the prefix from the infamous word eugenics, which literally means good genes. That's the same prefix, you. And then the second word, angelia, message. 
So the word gospel, really better translated, good message or good news. It was used in secular literature. It was used in literature of the day, often in a military sense. We have noted that many times for my conquering army coming back into their lands and announcing the Gilead. Something great has happened. We have an announcement. We have good news. We won the war or we won the battle. That's how the word typically is used. Mark uses the word in chapter one of Mark's gospel as the content of what Jesus preached. In Mark chapter one, it says Jesus went throughout the synagogues in Galilee preaching the Evangelion. Some translations say gospel. Some say good news. Good news, again, better translation. Jesus went around. He spent most of his ministry there in Galilee, upper Israel, more of a rural area. Galilee just means the district. And around what we would call the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee, synagogues and little Jewish villages, that's where most of his ministry took place. That's where most of his miracles occurred. And what is it that he preached in all these synagogues on Sabbath? The Evangelion, which raises the next question. If that's what the word means, translated good news, well, what exactly is this good news? And here it's very important to understand. So kids, young people, adults, here is the good news. This is not an inspired translation or definition, but it's mine. Hopefully it's biblical. Here it is. Best I can distill it. The good news, this Gilion that Jesus and the apostles declared and presented, is that God offers through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of his son Jesus, he offers that to a sinful human race as a way to be reconciled to him and find forgiveness and reconciliation. That is what Jesus went around preaching. He didn't go around preaching a self-help message. He didn't go around preaching be a better you message. He preached the euangelion. And what it means, let me go a level deeper. What it means at the most basic level is the gospel is not something we do. It's not calling us to do something. There's a summons to the gospel that we are supposed to respond to, but the gospel in and of itself doesn't mean do something. The word is an announcement. The word is a declaration. The word is a proclamation. And that's why I want to continue to describe and contrast it here. Another way to say this is the gospel is a story, a true story of something that already happened. It's a story about creation, and then it's a story about rebellion, and then it's a story about a promised Messiah, and a people of God, and a cross, and a Savior, and a death, and a resurrection, and an ascension. It is a grand story of reclaiming, rescuing, and reconciling a fallen world to God the Father. In other words... The gospel is not about doing things for God. The gospel is about what God has done for his people. That's the difference, and that's where so much confusion and fog settles in. Let me put it another way. It means, if you know your grammar, the gospel 
is written in the indicative mood. What's the indicative mood? Statement of fact. Statement of fact. It's telling you of a fact. It's announcing something that has taken place. That's the indicative mood. The language of the New Testament describing Uan Gilead is in the indicative. Every, hear this, every other world religion is described and written in the imperative mood. What's the imperative mood? The mood of command. The mood of do. All other world religions, I'm talking about Hinduism. There's six orthodox schools of Hinduism. I'm talking about Buddhism. You have both Theravada, Mahayana, and Zen, and Tibetan, and all the different branches of Buddhism. The, the schools of Islam, Sunni, Sufi, Shiite, and beyond. All other world religions are written in the imperative. They say, go do something. Earn your way with God or the gods, but you've got to do something. The gospel comes along and doesn't say do something. It announces something that has been done. And then presents it and says, will you respond to this? And the, what's been done is that God has offered his son on the cross to pay the penalty of sin. And then the question is, will you respond to it? Again, verse 18 gives us the three components, the very core of the gospel. Christ suffered. And he died, and he was resurrected. All of that is in verse 18. I want to go to one other passage that is probably one of the most gospel-drenched passages in the Bible, Romans chapter 3. hope you have a Bible either on your lap, in paper form, or on your device. It's so important to be looking at the text and seeing what the words are. Romans chapter 3, Paul is describing in his longest letter, this is one of the Apostle Paul's letter along with Galatians, probably his most gospel-centered letters, Romans and Galatians, the very core of the gospel. Now, Paul is going to give us some more context here. Peter kind of summarized it in one verse. Paul here is actually going to give us a broader... I told you the gospel is, is, is broader than what Peter's saying. And Paul here fleshes out some of that broader context. And it begins, Paul does, with our alienation from God, our sin and our rebellion against God. Because the whole point that Jesus had to die and suffer and then die and be resurrected was because there was something wrong with the human race. And there's where Paul's going to give us a broader context. So I'm going to start in verse 10, Romans 3.10. I'm just going to read a couple verses and then make a couple comments. And then we're going to come to verses 25 and 6 where we are given the, I think, linguistically and theologically the tightest most compact presentation of the atonement anywhere in the Bible. But first of all, the context, Romans 3, 10 to 12. Let's hear what it says, God's Word. As it is written, there is, now, and Paul's going to quote now from the Psalms, there is no one righteous, not even one. So if you thought you're righteous coming in here today, your bubble just got popped. There is no one who understands and no one who seeks God. That means there's not one person on this planet who has ever, of their own accord, thought, you know what, I need to seek God. Nobody seeks God. The whole, quote, seeker movement is completely off base theologically in this sense. Nobody seeks God unless God actively draws them. There, 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 there could be called a drawer's movement. 
The Bible talks about being drawn by God, but nobody seeks Him on their own in their sin. Why? Because all have turned away and have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. The most righteous grandma you can think of to the most wretched evil terrorist imaginable. It doesn't mean they're equal in God's eyes as far as the sins they've committed. There are degrees of sin and there will be degrees of punishment. That's clear. But all are contaminated and thoroughly polluted by sin, and it saturates our being. That's, that's Paul's point. He summarizes it, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short. They miss the mark of the glory of God. Yesterday, I was sitting going over this, and I was reading just a very normal, average sermon by Charles Spurgeon, and I came across a paragraph describing sin that is just so Spurgeon-y, I needed to read it. If you don't know who Charles Spurgeon is, he pastored just over 130, 40 years ago, the largest church on planet Earth, literally. In London, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, a Baptist congregation, regularly on Sunday morning before electricity and amplification, 6,000 people would fill the auditorium. It held 5,000. There was standing room for another 1,000, and the place would be packed. As Spurgeon, anointed by God, preached the gospel. And on May 4th, 1873, just a normal, May 3rd, sorry, 1873, just a normal Sunday, he preached a sermon called Miracles of Love to his congregation. It was based on Isaiah 38, 17. And at one point, describing our problem with sin, your problem with sin, my problem with sin, he uses language, it's just, you don't tend to run across this kind of language today. So here's the paragraph describing exactly what we just read in Paul. We are so destroyed by sin that we are like men who had rotted in a, rotted in a pit and were corrupt. For sin is a foul putrefication of our nature, and it has worked in us to the most dreadful degree, like the dead on a battlefield, think of that, rotting with foul decay. We are obnoxious to God, corrupt and abominable, close quote. And Spurgeon's point was, until you understand that, you're not ready for the love of God. I'm going to quote from the same sermon at the end today, because Spurgeon was not only unusually eloquent about sin and depravity, he was also unusually eloquent about God's grace and his love. And I'm going to quote a small section at the end about his love, where again, he just uses language in such a powerful way. Here's our problem. Young people, kids, adults, here's our problem. Our problem is we see ourselves basically as good people at heart. Even evangelical Christians often see themselves as essentially good people at heart. Now, the heart of a converted person has been redeemed, has new desires, new abilities. But fundamentally, human beings, even those broadly professing Christian beliefs, see themselves basically as good people. And that's certainly true broader as a culture. J.I. Packer in his classic Knowing God has an unusual way of putting it. I've quoted this before, but I love the quote. Quote, Modern men and women are convinced that despite all their minor sins, like abusing alcohol, gambling, breaking traffic laws, using pornography, telling white lies, cheating, reading trashy romance novels, nonetheless that they are at heart thoroughly good folks. Close quote. That should make you... Go, as I heard a few, hmm, 
No wonder Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Mine is. Sometimes when I'm confessing, I was sharing this last night with my son, I said, sometimes when I'm confessing and I come across a paragraph like Spurgeon, it just, it captures me because, and I don't know if you've had this experience, but sometimes when I'm confessing, it's like so much comes to mind and then I get overwhelmed with, I'm just a wretched heart. The, 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 the uh, attitudes, the motives, the inclinations, the, it's just, it's like, this is awful. And yet the gospel says, but God did something to provide forgiveness for it. And it means, according to Romans 3, and what Spurgeon says so well, and J.I. Packer says so well, it means we're born dead in sin. We're born blinded to our sin. We're born blinded to our condition. We somehow think, even when we read this and listen to sermons, eh, we're basically good people. And yet Romans says we're guilty of breaking God's law, our inclination is rebellion, and we're under judgment. I had a new little granddaughter born on Friday, Emma Grace. And as much as I love looking at the little pictures of her, I know she's wicked, depraved, and sinful. She's not even seven pounds yet. She's just as cute as a little pickle. But I know I'm looking at a very unique thing. I say this in all seriousness. I'm looking at a very precious creation in the eyes of God. And I'm looking at someone also who has inherited depravity from her grandfather and from my ancestors, and that she needs reconciliation with God like all of us need reconciliation with God. And that brings Paul now to verses 25 and 6. I told you, you could not have a more tightly compact definition of the atonement in verses 25 and 6. Let me read it. Here it is, and this fits perfectly with 1 Peter 3.18. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He, antecedent God, did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished under the old covenant. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That could be a sermon series. I want to zero in on verse 25 and the word propitiation. It it rendered that in some translations or in the NIV, sacrifice of atonement. Both are good translations. Propitiation, which is a Greek word used four times in the New Testament, means Jesus laid down his life to appease the justice and wrath of his father towards sin as a substitute for his people. John 10, 14. Jesus said this, I know my sheep, my sheep know me, and you know the last phrase? And I laid down my life for who? The sheep. Friends, that means that the driving problem of the human race, doesn't matter what ethnicity you are, where you're from, doesn't matter how old you are, what your socioeconomic bracket is, the driving problem of the human race is the need to be forgiven. Everybody knows around the world that something's wrong and that there's a cloud over the human race. There is a sense of guilt carried around by the human race. And the Bible says your greatest need is to be reconciled to a personal holy God. That's why there's this angst, there's this this ontological guilt that just kind of hangs over the human race. 
and why people are desperate worldwide for some level of reconciliation and forgiveness. A number of years ago, in one of my visits to India, I had the opportunity to tour the main temple to Kali in Calcutta. Kali is the goddess of death, hideous-looking demon god, who is even represented all over Calcutta, even in taxis, there's little, like, postcards of Kali, terribly-looking demon. I mean, just hideous-looking goddess of death. The city is named after her, Calicutta. So you got a whole city of 20 million people dedicated to the goddess of death. And we went to the temple, the, the main temple of Kali, where on a regular basis, little black goats are offered, heads are severed, and there's a whole stack of them. As blood is shed and people come through, I walk through the temple, watching people dip their fingers in this stuff, in the blood, desperately wiping it on themselves and kids trying to be forgiven. Why? What's that impulse in the human race? That something is wrong. Everybody knows that something is wrong between them and either the gods or the universe or God or whatever their worldview is, but something is wrong. And here's the message of the Bible. The Bible says that because Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law of God in his 33 years here, and then offered his life as a propitiation for sin, what Paul's talking about here, God can then take his righteousness or his perfect moral report card and transfer it to anyone who believes and repents and trusts Christ as Savior. Some people in Luther's day called that legal fiction, meaning what? Well, they would say, well, it's not, they're not really righteous. God just waving a wand saying they are right. No, Luther came along and said, it's not legal fiction. They really were unrighteous. Jesus really was righteous. And at the moment of conversion, God actually takes that righteousness of Christ and actually transfers it over to our account. It's not fiction. It's real. Luther was very clear about that. Meaning that at that very moment that a person cries out to Christ, they're forgiven. They're justified. They have peace with God, and they are forever reconciled to God. I'm going to give you a phrase from Luther. He put it in Latin. He usually wrote in Latin. And this phrase makes absolutely no sense to any other world religion. None. Zero. In fact, it makes nonsense to every other world religion except the Bible, except gospel. And the phrase he used in Latin Simul ustus et peccator, that at the moment of salvation, you are simultaneously just and sinful, or just and sinner. That makes sense in no other world religion. You're either one or the other. The Bible comes along and says, no, the moment a sinner confesses Christ, in one sense, they're still the same person. Their heart is readjusted and redeemed, but they're still the same sinner who has the same moral record, and yet at that very moment, they are declared innocent and justified of every sin, past, present, future. There is no other world religion that even comes close to that. Simul usus et peccator. Simultaneously just yet sinful. That captures the core of the gospel. Now, the problem with that is most people outside of biblical faith look at that and go, that's just nonsense. That's an old-fashioned Hebrew word, gobbledygook not really a Hebrew word, but it, they look at that and they, I was sharing the gospel in this last year with a, a man who's become a, a friend and we were sitting out and he's a brilliant guy, very unsaved. And I 
he's like, do you really believe that stuff that you talk about? And I said, I do. I do. And, I, and as we shared, he said, I just, I want to know what happens after I take my last breath. And he looked up, we were sitting under the stars, and he says, and I, I just, I don't know. And I said, the gospel message, once again, I shared it again, is that all who believe, I said, I can't explain all of what that means, like ontologically. I don't know exactly how it looks and works, but I believe it's true because the claims of Jesus have been substantiated and the credibility of the New Testament documents. I said, when you look at how Jesus changes lives, it's very clear, it's true that those who believe will be justified and on their last breath, they will enter a new phase of consciousness and be alive forever. And he, I could just tell to him at that moment, I'm praying for him, that it's just nonsense to him. And there's actually a verse about that. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, the message of the cross, the gospel, is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. Very power of God. All right. That takes us to the second section where we come to some of the stranger components of this section, verses 19 to 22. Before I dive into the salacious details here and all the stuff people want to argue about and debate about, I want to say this. Before you dive into verses 19 and 22, it is essential you remember the driving point of these verses. And the main point of verses 19 to 22 is the victory of the risen Jesus. If you miss that, then you miss what's going on here. That's what Peter's announcing. First, talks about better to suffer for what's doing right. Then he uses Jesus as an example, giving us his suffering, death, and resurrection as the core of the gospel. Then in 19 to 22, he's announcing the victory of the risen Jesus. Verses 19 to 22 argue that after Jesus' resurrection, God vindicated him and will vindicate all who come with him. Now, I want you to look at 18 and 22. Verse 18, verse 22. There's a very tight connection between the opening and closing verses here. In, in 18 and 22, there are th identical participles in Greek that connect something. They connect what humans did to Jesus and what the Father did for Jesus. And this is clear in the Greek. It's not an accident. So in verse 18, you have a very clear distinction between what humans did to Jesus, to him, and then verse 22 and verse 18 also, what the Father did for Jesus. And they're, they're, they're identified by these very clear participles. So, verse 18. He was put to death by men in the flesh. Okay, that's what humans did to him. And now in verse 18, he was made alive in the Spirit. In verse 22, he has gone into heaven. These participles are clearly connected and identical. They're identical participles in the Greek, meaning Peter is hooking, stitching this together, showing you what humans did to Jesus and what the Father did for him. We killed him. We put him to death. Father made him alive in the Spirit and then took him to heaven. So Peter's telling us that Jesus suffered and went to death, but then he was vindicated by his Father. That's why I said the essence of these verses is the victory announced of Jesus and his resurrection. This describes what theologians call Christus victor. 
You heard the phrase? It means the victory of Christ. And it's a key part of the atonement. The atonement is about reconciling lost sinners, but there's also an aspect of the atonement that announces victory of Jesus over the demonic realm. Now, having said that, there's some unusual features that emerge now in verses 19 to 22. Some of you thought he's going to dodge this. No, I'm not. Here it goes. After being made alive, so after resurrection, he went and made proclamation to imprisoned spirits, or the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Full stop. So we'll stop there. Okay. Who are the spirits? And what is Peter teaching about baptism? And then we're going to land the plane. Ready? These are important questions. Who are these spirits? Now, the problem with Bible study is that when you come to funky, funky stuff like this, it can often derail the whole Bible study because these are like one-of-a-kind verses. They're unique and they're intriguing and we want to get off on them and we want to, again, forget the whole context here. This is a section on the core of the gospel and this is a section on the victory of Jesus. But fair to ask, okay, what are these imprisoned spirits? Now, I said in the first service, I normally do not practice you know, homiletical relativism. What is that? Homiletics, preaching, speaking. Relativism, meaning I present a number of views and say, you know, okay, here's A, here's B, here's C, here's D. Having said that, to be fair to the history of interpretation, and because this is kind of a, a, a one-off text that is not really repeated anywhere else in the Bible, it does link up a little bit with Jude, but it's a fairly unique, uh, a little bit uh, uh, opaque text. Let me give you the four basic views on what these imprisoned spirits are. This won't take long. Two of the views argue that the spirits he preached to are human. And two of the views argue, no, the spirits aren't human. They are evil angels. So here's the four views. And I'm going to tell you which one I think the evidence points to pretty strongly. Now, view number one is that the spirits, if you look at verse, I mean, look at the verse there. These spirits, did you stare at that for a second? What are the spirits? Well, the first view says the spirits are unsaved people that lived in Noah's day, who heard the gospel preached through Noah. That's view number one. I don't think that's what it says. Number two says that the spirits were unsaved people of Noah's day that Jesus went and preached to after his resurrection or between his death and resurrection. Really, I don't think it's saying that, nor do most New Testament scholars. Now, the last two views argue that no, spirits doesn't refer to people. It's referring to fallen evil angels. I think we're getting closer here. View three is the spirits were fallen angels from Genesis 6, referenced in Jude, that Jesus visited in prison. He went to visit these fallen angels, evil angels, in prison. These are angels referenced in Genesis 6 that had sexual relations with women. And he did this between his death and resurrection. Not much evidence for that historically, theologically, or linguistically. Fourth view is, number one, was the dominant view, the one I'm going to tell you about next, is, is the dominant view at the time of Jesus and Peter. 
And secondly is the dominant view, bar none, of most New Testament scholars today. That doesn't mean it's true, but it does mean you should at least look at it and say, huh. So the dominant view in Peter's day was these imprisoned spirits were actually the angels who left their abode in Genesis 6 and had sexual relations with women. And because of that, they received an unusual punishment of being put in some sort of a prison, spiritual prison, and they're held there. That was the dominant view of Jesus' day and Peter's day. And that these are the spirits Jesus went to preach to after his resurrection, after his ascension, for what purpose? To announce that he had triumphed over Satan in the demonic realm. And that is by far, when I looked at all the scholarly consensus today and the dominant Jewish view in Jesus' day, they all line up and say, that's where most of the weight falls and that's why I think that that's what the text is actually saying here. That leads to a second question. Well, then what's Peter teaching about baptism? Verses 20 and 21, he is comparing baptism to Noah's flood. That's clear. And he is saying something like, just like the ark saved Noah's family from disaster, so baptism does the same thing with us. Now, it's very clear he's not saying literal water baptism saves, because verse 21 clarifies he's not talking about actually removing the dirt from our body, like water going over us. He's talking that baptism symbolizes something that Noah's Ark symbolized, that is salvation from disaster. But it's clear that Peter is using baptism here to represent faith and trust in Christ. It's interesting in the New Testament, in their preaching, the apostles regularly would say things like, repent and be baptized and you'll be saved. That doesn't mean logically that you had to be baptized to be saved, but it means they were so tightly connected, they were often used in the same sentence. That's how close baptism was to salvation in the New Testament. That's why we say the concept of an unimmersed believer is a, is a contradiction in the New Testament. There's no such thing. To be saved was then immediately to go proclaim Christ by being immersed and brought out of the water. All right. What's our summons this morning? This isn't rocket science. It's pretty clear. This is a gospel-drenched text. It's an awesome text. And here is the summons. Two things. One, God summons every single human being, every single person, to repent and believe in Jesus. And after this, to go share it with their kids and their grandkids and those around them that they care about. The gospel is Jesus came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's the gospel. Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I told you I'd come back to Spurgeon. He was unusually articulate about sin. He was also unusually articulate about the love of God. Listen, in that same sermon, Miracles of Love, May 3rd, 1874, it was the love of God which moved him to have compassion upon us when we were in the pit of corruption. It was the love of God which moved him to have compassion on us when we were in the pit of corruption. God loved us even when we were in that loathsome condition. This is a deep mystery of love. And Spurgeon had a way of describing God's seeking love. So the gospel announces, look what God did in Jesus. Then it summons sinners. Now, repent and believe. What's our problem? Our problem is that our default setting is law. Meaning what? We want to do something, not submit 
to a savior. <laughs> That's human beings. We'd rather be given a list of things to do and check off than a savior to submit to. That's our root problem. That's why religion's popular and the gospel's not. That's the first summons. Second summons is for those here today who do know Christ as Savior, and it's this. Remember, we are called to be obedient to our master. Jesus says, if you really know him, nothing less than faithful obedience will do. Otherwise, you don't know him. And he says, faithful obedience, and there's many commands. John Piper's book on what Jesus commands of the world is outstanding as he sifts through all the commands and demands of Jesus on the believer about our money. He speaks more about money than anything else, about our sex lives, about our leisure, about our children and our parenting. The Bible talks about how we operate in the business realm, whether we're employer or employee, about how we treat our spouses about how we honor the Sabbath, whether we choose to be baptized is an issue of obedience. On and on the list goes. If you say you know Jesus, the question this morning is, young people, are you obeying him? Kids, adults, are you obeying him? Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, John 14. 1 John 2, the one who says, I know him, but isn't doing what he says is a liar. Or 1 John 5, 3, this is love for God to keep his commands, and his commands are not a burden. Why aren't they a burden? Because once you're a new creature in Christ, you have new desires and new abilities, and you're alive in the Holy Spirit, and you're one with Christ, and you want to obey. And the difference between Peter and Judas, they committed the same sin. Peter wanted to repent, and he did. That's the difference between the same sin committed by a believer and an unbeliever. And that is what the gospel is about. This leads perfectly into the Lord's table this morning.